The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no higher name. I was sharing with you just moments ago about this vision the Lord impressed on my heart a couple of weeks ago about being anchored in Jesus. And when, you're, when your life is anchored in Jesus, even though the waves are crashing around you, your boat remains calm. The Bible talks about a peace that surpasses all human understanding. I've come to grips that I cannot explain this peace to people because it's a peace that needs to be experienced. And when you experience this peace, you know, you know, you know that you have that peace, that peace that surpasses all human understanding. Though all around you, the waves are crashing, it is well with my soul. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 and verse 17 is our main text today. This is the second message in our five-part Christmas series entitled Christmas, Love, Joy, Peace, Hope. I love Christmas here at Greece Assembly. Next week, Christmas celebration, December 18th at 10.30 a.m. You don't want to miss it. I encourage you, invite your neighbors, your family, your co-workers, the person checking you out at, at Wegmans, at Tops. Invite anybody. Invite your mailman. It is going to be a glorious time as we celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we worship him. The Lord's laid a message on my heart for next Sunday. We're going to look at two names, two sons that were, were born. Both were given two different names. One, Emmanuel, God with us. The other one, Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. The message of Christmas is not Ichabod. It's Emmanuel, God with us. I encourage you to come next Sunday. Invite as many people as you can. God has put a, a very powerful, powerful word on my heart for next Sunday, December 18th. Following the service, as Pastor Dan shared, we're going to be joining together to fellowship in the gymnasium. We have lots of things planned for you downstairs. The ch children's choir, I believe there was 44 children that were here yesterday rehearsing for next Sunday. They're going to be ministering to you in song. I can't wait. I love listening and, and, and watching the children minister unto our Savior. Amen. You're going to be blessed. Share that blessing. Invite others to join you. Can I hear a big amen? Today's text you might call the forgotten chapter of, of the Christmas story. It is a genealogy, a list of names, most of them unpronounceable. But because of that, this is a portion of scripture that we tend to overlook. We don't know what to do with it. It's not often read in public. For that matter, we don't read it often in private unless we're following one of those read the Bible in a year plan. But even then, if you're like me, we, we gloss over it. It's just a long list of names starting with Abraham and, and ending with Jesus. In between are some names we recognize like, like Jacob and Solomon and Jehoshaphat and, and many more we've never heard of. The structure is simple. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so. 
etc. One name after another, a listing of generations of the Hebrew people from their father Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. As far as history goes, the list is fascinating. But the Jews of the first century would be quite surprised by our attitude towards the genealogies recorded, especially here in the Gospel of Matthew. To them, to the Jews, the genealogy would have been absolutely essential for the story of Jesus' birth. My wife's going to come, and she's going to read to us the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and verse 17. Good morning, hon. Good morning, church. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after that they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is also called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Thank you, hon. What an inspiring text. Amen. Shalom. Let's go home. Aren't you inspired for the week? There's some amazing Eternal truths. Thank you, hon. In the genealogy of Jesus that inspires and strengthens our faith. And I trust today as we look at this text that the purpose of why God inspired Matthew to record Jesus' genealogy would become so real and personal and fresh in our hearts and our minds and our spirits as we continue to celebrate the reason for this amazing season that we're in. 
For unto us a son was given. Amen. Unto us a son was born. Jesus. Jesus. Our Savior. The Savior of the world. The Jews routinely paid close attention to questions of genealogy. For instance... Whenever land was bought or sold, the records of a person's family tree were reviewed to ensure that the land belonging to one tribe was not being sold to members of another tribe. You couldn't just put the money down and and, and take the deed. You just couldn't do that. You also had to prove that your ancestors came from that same tribe. The genealogy was also crucial in determining the priesthood. This was so important. The Old Testament law specified that the priest must come from the tribe of Levi. And so the genealogy was so critically important. The genealogy also helped determine who was in line to the throne. The same principle applies directly to the Christmas story. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. This is an important part of the Christmas story, of Christ's story. That meant that each man must return to his hometown, the town from which his family had originally come from. But the only way you could be sure about your family's hometown was to know your genealogy, to know your family tree. And this is why Mary and Joseph had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the ninth month of her pregnancy. They had to make that long, dangerous journey because Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, a fact they knew from studying his family tree, studying his genealogy. Why is this important as we celebrate Christ this Christmas season? To a skeptical Jewish reader, no question would be more central in his mind. You see, God had said 1,000 years earlier that the Messiah must come from the line of David. We see this in reading 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the time of Christ, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. Other men, imposters, claimed to be Israel's Messiah. And so the genealogy of Christ was critically, critically important in the mind and hearts of the Jews. Who would the people know to believe? One answer, check his genealogy. If he's not from the line of David, forget it. He can't be the Messiah. And so this was critically, critically important. That's why Matthew chapter 1 begins this way, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's interesting. David is listed first, even though chronologically Abraham came first in history. And so it begs us to ask the question, why? Because the crucial issue was not, is Jesus a Jew, a son of Abraham, but rather, is he a direct descendant of David? That was so critically, critically important. In order for Jesus to qualify as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he must be a literal, physical descendant of David. His right to the throne is determined by his genealogy, which establishes beyond question that he is indeed a literal descendant of King David. And so the genealogy demonstrates that Jesus had a family history. Think about that here this morning as we, as we prepare to celebrate with our own families Christmas. 
The genealogy demonstrates, the genealogy of Jesus Christ demonstrates that Jesus had a human family. He had a mother and a father and a history. He's not some fictional character, and that's an important truth. He was a real person born into a real family. Galatians chapter 4, Paul writing to the church in Galatia, he writes in verses 5, 4 through 7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Abba, Father. Daddy, God. Wow. We can know and serve a God who is personal. No other religion can claim that they have a a God that you can know, that you can walk with, that you can talk to, that you can know on such a personal, deep level. You see, church, the genealogy of Jesus is a chronicle of the grace of Almighty God, of our Heavenly Father. If you study these names and his genealogy in detail, nearly all of them had notable moral failures on their spiritual resumes. For example, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah, a fornicator. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And Solomon, a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel ever had. And on and on we could go. This was not a list of saints. Far from it. The best of these men had flaws, and some were so flawed that it's impossible to see their good points. How does this show the grace of God, our Father in heaven? Simple. Simply. It shows the grace of God because people like this make up Jesus' family tree. A murderer is on the list. Think about that. Shouts the grace of God. A fornicator is on the list. Shouts the grace of God. An adulterer is on the list. Shouts the grace of God. A liar is on the list. How many liars here today? Don't have to raise your hand. It shouts the grace of God. A deceiver is on the list. Shouts the grace of God. Christmas is not simply about a birth, but about a coming. A coming. God had planned for the arrival of his son before, the, before he even created the earth. We see this in the scriptures. One example is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of of the world. Christmas is not simply about a child, but about a savior, about a coming of a savior who would save the world from their sin, who would save Pat Medeiros, who would save you and the person sitting on each side of you. You see, Matthew in his gospel, the word gospel means good news. The Christmas message, church, is good news. We need good news. In this bad news world, we need good news. And we have the good news. We are to be reporters, amen? We are to be ambassadors, messengers of this good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message, the story of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? 
And so Matthew in his gospel does not begin his story of Jesus' birth by saying, once upon a time. That is the way fairy tales and legends and, and myths begin. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a metaphor, church. He is real. He's a real person. This all happened. It's a part of his story. It's a part of history. It's a part of our story. It's a part of our history. Here is why that is so important today as we celebrate Christmas. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel of the Lord tells the shepherds while they were tending their flocks in the field, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel, is a good news, an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Notice the angel doesn't say in Luke chapter 2, here's what you have to do. No, rather the angel says in verses 10 and 11, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ, anointed one. He's the anointed one. Before the foundations of the world were formed, he was the anointed one. God's chosen one to come into the world, to save the world. Amen? Thanks be to God. Christmas. Christmas, of course, is just the beginning of the story of how God came to save us. Christmas points us to the cross, the cross to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection to the ascension, and the ascension to the intercession. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, forever making intercession for us. He's forever representing you and me before our Holy Father in heaven. Through him, we can be saved clothed in his righteousness, and we can know God and walk with God and talk with God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Christmas points to the cross where Christ died for you, to the resurrection where Christ rose for you, the resurrection to the, to the ascension and the ascension to the intercession where he intercedes for you and me. And the intercession to the second coming. And the second coming to peace on earth. Yes, peace on earth will one day become a reality. Man's trying to broker it. He's been trying to broker it for years. But before the foundations of the world were formed, God anointed his son to be the prince of peace. And to his peace, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, there will be no end. That one day will become a reality at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious, church? It gets better than today. Did you hear that, church? There's a better tomorrow coming. There's a better tomorrow coming. Do you believe that, church? There is a better tomorrow coming. It gets better than today. Wow. 
We need to get this message out. It's good news. Amen? Joining the angel was a host of angels praising God and saying in Luke 2, 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. 700 years before Christ's first coming, Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, a very familiar passage during the Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government in peace there will be no end it's important to remember the culture in which matthew was living and writing we live in a culture in which you recommend yourself to others with a list of your degrees your work experience your accomplishments that's not how it was done in a more family-oriented culture society we've lost that sense today that sense of community. Matthew 1 is a genealogy, but it was also a resume. You see, in those times, it was your family, your pedigree and clan, the people you were connected to that constituted your resume. A genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. This is who I am. It's interesting to know that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes just like people do today. We tend to leave out the parts of our track record that might make us look bad. And so we kind of pad, we fluff our resume. People in the ancient times did that as well. Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he didn't want anyone to know they were connected to him. Certain people were connected to him. But Matthew does the very opposite with Jesus Christ. This genealogy is shocking. Unlike other ancient genealogies, it begins with this woman listed. There are women listed in the genealogy. You might say, so what's the big deal? I mean, beginning right there in the genealogy of Christ, there are women listed in the genealogy. And you might say, so what's the big deal? But in ancient societies, a woman was virtually never named in such a list. It was a man-dominated society. Yet we see women listed in Jesus' genealogy. This should really grab our attention. Almost most of the women in Jesus' resume were Gentiles. They weren't even Jews. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, they were Gentiles. They were were Canaanites. and, And there was a Moabite listed. To the ancient Jews, these nations were unclean. This was, this was unheard of. They weren't allowed into the tabernacle or the temple to, to worship God. Yet they are in Jesus' genealogy. There's a tremendous hidden truth here for us to see as we celebrate Christ this Christmas season. You see, by naming these women, Matthew deliberately recalls for the readers some of the most immoral incidents recorded in the Bible. For example, he says Judah was the father of Perez and and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. We see this in verse 3 of our text. Do you recall what happened? Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and and tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 38. And Tamar gets pregnant and, and her son Perez joined Judah in the messianic line. 
through deception. Adultery. It was out of that dysfunctional family that Christ came into the world. And then there is Rahab. She was not just a Canaanite, but also a prostitute. As you read her story in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6, you read how she put her faith in the God of Israel and demonstrated it by protecting two men. And Joshua sent to spy out her land. You see, there's always evidence of someone's faith in God. What's the evidence that you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? God spared her life and the lives of her family when Jericho was captured and destroyed. And again, you can read this story in Joshua chapters 2 and chapter 6. He graciously brought her into the messianic line. She became the wife of Salmon and and the mother of of the godly Boaz, David's great-grandfather. Shouts grace, grace, grace. Amazing grace. And then you have Ruth, the wife of Boaz, was the third outcast in Jesus' genealogy, though she was a Moabite and former pagan. Having no right to marry an Israelite, God's grace brought Ruth into the family of Israel and through Boaz into the royal line. She became the grandmother of Israel's great king, David. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The fourth woman mentioned was not mentioned by name. Look at verse 6 of our text. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Why not just say Bathsheba? (laughs) David slept with her while her husband, uh, one of David's mighty men, was away in battle. She gets pregnant with David's child. Concerned Uriah would find out that it was David's baby. He has Uriah killed. A friend, a close friend. A, a, a loyal soldier. David marries Bathsheba. Their baby boy at birth dies. Eventually she gives birth to Solomon from where Jesus descended. This is Jesus' family tree. This is his genealogy. It was out of that deep flawed man that the Messiah came. The family tree of Jesus. Sounds like our family tree. Before Christ. The law of Moses excluded these kinds of people from the presence of God. And yet they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus Christ. What does this mean to us over 2,000 years later? First, it shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of Moses can be brought into Jesus' family. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you've done. You see, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover your sin and unite you with himself. This is a miracle, a miracle of grace. Christmas is about a miracle, the miracle of God's grace, God's presence coming into the world and becoming personal with you and me. Isn't that beautiful, church? 
In ancient times, it was a concept of ceremonial cleanness. Ceremonial cleanness. If you wanted to stay holy, if you wanted to stay respectable, you had to avoid contact with the unholy, the unholy people. Well, we're talking and we're looking at four unholy people in Jesus' family tree who became a part of his genealogy. The unholiness was considered to be contagious, contagious, and so you had to stay separate. If you wanted to stay holy or respectable, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. The moment you came in contact, and and Pastor Ken, you've been made holy because of what Jesus Christ has done. But let's just say he's one of the unholy ones. And I touch him. Nobody. I would be excommunicated from my family. I would be an outcast. No one would come close to me because they all would believe that now I have been made unholy. His unholy state was contagious. And I caught his unholiness, his disease of unholiness because I touched him. It was forbidden. The Jews could not touch those who were unclean. But Jesus turns that all around. Church, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus turned that all around. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters a man with leprosy. Someone with leprosy was removed from their family, from their community. There could be no contact with somebody who had this horrible disease. It was a picture of sin, of our unrighteousness. It was a dreaded disease back in Jesus' day. If the man was removed, the wife couldn't even kiss him goodbye for fear that she too would become afflicted with leprosy. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read, when Jesus came, I love this portion of Scripture, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out. I love this. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus reached out, church. Jesus reached out and touched the man I am willing he said be clean immediately the Bible says immediately he was he was cleansed of his leprosy there's a powerful truth here that we don't want to miss Jesus's holiness Jesus's goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us let me say that again Jesus' holiness, Jesus' goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. Amen, church? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. A holy God left a holy throne, a holy heaven, and entered an unholy world to touch an unholy you and an unholy me. And our unholiness did not contaminate him. But when our unholiness encountered his holiness, his holiness, amen.
radically changed us. Wow. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The Christmas message invites us to come to Jesus. Regardless of who you are and what you've done in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king. Think about this. Prostitute and king. We see this in his genealogy. Prostitute and king. Male and female. Jew and Gentile. Moral and immoral. All sit down as equals. Equally sinful. Equally lost. Equally accepted and loved by God. Let's praise him, church. He's worthy to be praised. Jesus' genealogy tells us that God is not ashamed of us. Here's another thing we learn from the genealogy of Jesus. It reminds us that the promise of the Messiah took generations to come to be fulfilled. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through his descendants. Actually, it was even before that in Genesis 3.15 that God himself prophesied that one would come who would crush the head of Satan and defeat evil. Jesus was speaking of Jesus. God was speaking of his son. Before the foundations of the world were formed, he anointed his son to be the one who would crush Satan's head and defeat evil. But it was centuries, millennia, before the angel came to Mary and told her about the, the child she was to bear. Mary's song in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, she sings in verse 53 and 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. It's so good to remember. One of the reasons why it's so good to celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, to remember this great salvation that's been provided how God left heaven and came to us. We didn't come to him. He came to us. We didn't seek him out. He came and sought us out. Amen. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. The promise was a long time coming, church. In fact, 400 years, 400 years before Christ was born, no prophets were sent to the people, let alone a Messiah. Maybe you feel like you're in a long drought. You're not hearing God's voice. It was 400 years before Christ was born. No prophets were sent to the people, let alone a Messiah. It looked like God had forgotten them. No one was coming. It, it, it seemed in the natural, but then he came. Then he came. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises, church. God's grace never operates on our time frame, on a schedule. We consider reasonable. God, this is a reasonable schedule. I think it would be really good, God, if you just followed my schedule, my plan. He does not follow our agenda, church, or our schedules. But be assured, he is working, even when you're in that season where you can't hear him that you feel like he's not speaking, that he's not doing anything, that he's not working. Be assured, he is working. And the plan that he has for your life, he is working on that plan. Amen? Perfectly in heaven. And in his time, his plan, his perfect plan, will unfold for your life. So Christmas means that. Though things may seem to be moving slow and it may seem that God has forgotten you, but right now he is in the process of arranging all that will fulfill his great 
promises. Finally, we learn from the genealogies that Jesus is the ultimate rest. At the end of the genealogy, Matthew makes much of the numbers of the generations. In Matthew chapter 1, our text, verse 17, he says that there were 14 generations. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And 14 from the exile to Christ. So there have been six sevenths of generations. And that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seventh. What is that about? In the Bible, the number seven is highly significant because, as Genesis tells us, God rested from his created work on the seventh day. The Sabbath day, one day in seven, is the day of rest. However, the Sabbath seventh symbolism goes even further. In the Mosaic Law, every seven years, the farmer was to let the land rest to give it a chance to replenish its nutrients. And so the seventh year represented rest. Finally, we're told in Leviticus chapter 25 that the last year of the seventh period of seven years, the 49th year, are you following all of that, church? Was to be a year of jubilee. A year of jubilee. Let me say that again. A year of jubilee. In that year of jubilee, all the slaves were to be freed and all debts were to be um, forgiven. How many want a year of jubilee right now? How many have credit card debt? You know, don't raise your hands. All the land and all the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. Grace. Remember when Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day? He stood up and read from Isaiah 61. Luke records how he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is a reference to the year of Jubilee when all the slaves were to be freed and all debts were to be forgiven. All the land and all All the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. You see, church, the Christmas message is a message about rest, true rest. The seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, was a foretaste of the true rest that will come to us only through Jesus Christ. Jesus gives this wonderful invitation to us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The imagery of this invitation was well known in those days. The farmer would design a yoke for two oxen to be yoked together, to plow the field together. It was designed especially for the lead ox, There was a lead ox amongst the two ox. And so it was designed, the yoke was designed especially for the lead ox who would carry the greater weight and in a way for the smaller ox to follow the lead ox. It's a great picture. I love this picture. Jesus is saying, I've come to carry the greater weight of your sin. I've come to carry the greater weight of your sin. Let me be the lead ox of your life. Trust me, come to me, and enjoy the rest I have come to provide you through my death and my resurrection.
This invitation was very welcoming. The people were beaten down. The people that Jesus gave this invitation to, they were beaten down and weary, knowing it was impossible to keep all the laws. It was impossible to keep the Ten Commandments. You, the, the, the Bible says you break one, you break them all. But the religious people of Jesus' day added hundreds of more laws that they had to keep. Can you imagine? And the moment you broke one of those laws, you broke them all. You were out of the, the grace of God. You were condemned. Can you imagine this pressure to, to live and, and lead a perfect life and never to mess up or, 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 or fail or, or sin? Can you imagine the guilt, the condemnation that they lived with 24-7? You see, that's, that's, that's the guilt and the weight and the condemnation that religion puts on people. Religion says, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this to be right with God. That's why people are, are leaving religious institutions. Because they've discovered that there's just no way. And so, if I'm going to live with all this guilt and condemnation, I might as well not even bother with faith. I might as well just do my own thing. And maybe you're here today and you feel that way. This is a welcoming invitation to you. Amen? They lived in constant guilt and condemnation, never measuring up, never being good enough. They didn't feel loved by God. They had no joy. They had no peace. They had no hope. And maybe that's how you feel today. My prayer today is that we will all understand that Jesus Christ was not born once upon a time but really broke into time and space. That he has accomplished what you and I could not. He has saved us from our sins so that prostitute and king could sit together at his table, his banqueting table in heaven. If you believe that even now, you can begin to taste the rest that Jesus gives. Christmas is not once upon a time. A story happened that shows us how we should live better lives. No, not at all. Jesus broke into the world to save us. Christ, the Savior, is born. As I conclude, the genealogy of Jesus reveals seven things. And we can add to this list. This is not an exhaustive list. But through the genealogy of Jesus, we see these seven things. Number one, God is full of love and grace. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his one and only son. Number two, salvation is for everyone. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Number three, no one is beyond the gospel's reach. No one. No matter what you've done, you're not beyond the gospel's reach. Number four, you're not a hopeless case. Oh, how many conversations do I have with people? There's no hope, Pastor. I am a hopeless case. Pastor, why do you even bother meeting with me? Don't even pray for me, Pastor. I am a hopeless case. Church, according to the genealogy of Jesus, you're not a hopeless case. Amen? Number five, God keeps his promises and can be trusted. He might not be working on your timetable, the way you want him to, but be assured he is working for you. God is for you. He's not against you. He's working together all things 
for his good, amen? For his glory in your life. Number six, God is working even when you can't see. He is. And number seven, true rest can be yours. Christmas brings these truths into focus and how we need to be brought back into focus. It's easy once we leave this building to see all the waves crashing around us. And all we see are the waves. All we see are the storms of life. Despair begins to fill us. We're void of peace, joy, hope. Christmas brings these truths into focus. You can know the love, joy, peace, and hope that the Christ in Christmas gives. Even when the waves are crashing all around your boat, you can say, like the songwriter penned, it is well with my soul. You know the story behind that hymn? A, fa- a, a, a husband and a, wife, and, a, and, a, and a dad, a father, lost his wife and his girls in a, in a ship that sunk in a rough sea. That's the history. That's the story. This great man of faith and this tremendous loss in his life, he penned the words to this song, It is well with my soul. Church, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? It doesn't mean, even when it is, the waves are not going to crash around your boat. Doesn't mean that you're not going to experience storms. All it means is in the midst of the storm, your boat remains calm because it's anchored in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Would you join me standing here today? And let's sing this closing Christmas classic, Angels We Have Heard on High. And before we sing this classic, can we just for a moment just bow our heads for just a moment? Reflect on God's message this morning. Is it well with your soul? Can you say, yes, it is well with your soul? If you're here today and you can't say, it is well with your soul, you want to leave here saying with all assurance, by faith in Jesus Christ, it is well with my soul. Would you raise your hand here today? Just raise it, raise it up. Is there anyone here today that would just raise their hand and say, yes, thank you, thank you. Others here today, just raise your hand. Thank you. Others here today. Thank you. Thank you, sir. As we sing this song, Angels We Have Heard on High, I invite you to call on the name of the Lord. The Bible promises you shall be saved. Your soul will be anchored in Jesus Christ. At the close of the service, those of you who have raised your hands, the pastors are going to hang here. If you would like to come and just have prayer and they would love to pray with you. They would love to encourage you. We'd love to bless you with the Bible as well.